Chapter twenty one of Biographia Literaria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Biographia Literaria by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Chapter twenty one. Remarks on the present mode of conducting critical journals. Long have I wished to see a fair and philosophical inquisition into the character of Wordsworth as a poet on the evidence of his published works and a positive not a comparative appreciation of their characteristic excellencies deficiencies and defects i know no claim that the mere opinion of any individual can have to weigh down the opinion of the author himself against the probability of whose parental partiality we ought to set that of his having thought longer and more deeply on the subject but i should call that investigation fair and philosophical in which the critic announces and endeavours to establish the principles which he holds for the foundation of poetry in general with the specification of these in their application to the different classes of poetry having thus prepared his canons of criticism for praise and condemnation he would proceed to particularize the most striking passages to which he deems them applicable faithfully noticing the frequent or infrequent recurrence of similar merits or defects and as faithfully distinguishing what is characteristic from what is accidental or a mere flagging of the wing then if his premises be rational his deductions legitimate and his conclusions justly applied the reader and possibly the poet himself may adopt his judgment in the light of judgment and in the independence of free agency if he has erred he presents his errors in a definite place and tangible form and holds the torch and guides the way to their detection i most willingly admit and estimate at a high value the services which the edinburgh review and others formed afterwards on the same plan have rendered to society in the diffusion of knowledge i think the commencement of the edinburgh review an important epoch in periodical criticism and that it has a claim upon the gratitude of the literary republic and indeed of the reading public at large for having originated the scheme of reviewing those books only which are susceptible and deserving of argumentative criticism not less meritorious and far more faithfully and in general far more ably executed is their plan of supplying the vacant place of the trash or mediocrity wisely left to sink into oblivion by its own weight with original essays on the most interesting subjects of the time religious or political in which the titles of the books or pamphlets prefixed furnish only the name and occasion of the disquisition i do not arraign the keenness or asperity of its damnatory style in and for itself as long as the author is addressed or treated as the mere impersonation of the work then under trial i have no quarrel with them on this account as long as no personal allusions are admitted and no recommitment for new trial of juvenile performances that were published perhaps forgotten many years before the commencement of the review since for the forcing back of such works to public notice no motives are easily assignable but such as are furnished to the critic by his own personal malignity or what is still worse by a habit of malignity in the form of mere wantonness no private grudge they need no personal spite the viva sectio is its own delight all enmity all envy they disclaim disinterested thieves of our good name cool sober murderers of their neighbour's fame s t c every censure every sarcasm respecting a publication which the critic with the criticised work before him can make good is the critic's right the writer is authorised to reply but not to complain neither can any one prescribe to the critic how soft or how hard how friendly or how bitter shall be the phrases which he is to select for the expression of such reprehension or ridicule the critic must know what effect it is his object to produce and with a view to this effect must he weigh his words but as soon as the critic betrays that he knows more of his author than the author's publications could have told him as soon as from this more intimate knowledge elsewhere obtained he avails himself of the slightest trait against the author 
his censure instantly becomes personal injury his sarcasms personal insults he ceases to be a critic and takes on him the most contemptible character to which a rational creature can be degraded that of a gossip backbiter and pasquillant but with this heavy aggravation that he steals the unquiet the deforming passions of the world into the museum into the very place which next to the chapel and oratory should be our sanctuary and secure place of refuge offers abominations on the altar of the muses and makes its sacred paling the very circle in which he conjures up the lying and profane spirit this determination of unlicensed personality and of permitted and legitimate censure which i owe in part to the illustrious lessing himself a model of acute spirited sometimes stinging but always argumentative and honourable criticism is beyond controversy the true one and though i would not myself exercise all the rights of the latter yet let but the former be excluded i submit myself to its exercise in the hands of others without complaint and without resentment let a communication be formed between any number of learned men in the various branches of science and literature and whether the president and central committee be in london or edinburgh if only they previously lay aside their individuality and pledge themselves inwardly as well as ostensibly to administer judgment according to a constitution and code of laws and if by grounding this code on the twofold basis of universal morals and philosophic reason independent of all foreseen application to particular works and authors they obtain the right to speak each as the representative of their body corporate they shall have honour and good wishes for me and i shall accord to them their fair dignities though self-assumed not less cheerfully than if i could inquire concerning them in the herald's office or turn to them in the book of peerage however loud may be the outcries for a prevented or subverted reputation however numerous and impatient the complaints of merciless severity and insupportable despotism i shall neither feel nor utter aught but to the defence and justification of the critical machine should any literary quixote find himself provoked by its sounds and regular movements i should admonish him with sancho panza that it is no giant but a windmill there it stands on its own place and its own hillock never goes out of its way to attack any one and to none and from none either gives or asks assistance when the public press has poured in any part of its produce between its millstones it grinds it off one man's sack the same as another and with whatever wind may happen to be then blowing all the two-and-thirty winds are alike its friends of the whole wide atmosphere it does not desire a single finger-breath more than what is necessary for its sails to turn round in but this space must be left free and unimpeded gnats beetles wasps butterflies and the whole tribe of ephemerals and insignificants may flit in and out and between may hum and buzz and jar may shrill their tiny pipes and whine their puny horns unchastised and unnoticed but idlers and bravados of larger size and prouder show must beware how they place themselves within its sweep much less may they presume to lay hands on the sails the strength of which is neither greater nor less than as the wind is which drives them round whomsoever the remorseless arm slings aloft or whirls along with it in the air he has himself alone to blame though when the same arm throws him from it it will more often double than break the force of his fall putting aside the too manifest and too frequent interference of national party and even personal predilection or aversion and reserving for deeper feelings those worse and more criminal intrusions into the sacredness of private life which not seldom merit legal rather than literary chastisement the two principal objects and occasions which i find for blame and regret in the conduct of the review in question are first its unfaithfulness to its own announced and excellent plan by subjecting to criticism works neither indecent nor immoral yet of such trifling importance even in point of size and according to the critic's own verdict so devoid of all merit as must excite in the most candid mind the suspicion either that dislike or vindictive feelings were at work 
or that there was a cold prudential predetermination to increase the sale of the review by flattering the malignant passions of human nature that i may not myself become subject to the charge which i am bringing against others by an accusation without proof i refer to the article on dr reynolds sermon in the very first number of the edinburgh review as an illustration of my meaning if in looking through all the succeeding volumes the reader should find this a solitary instance i must submit to that painful forfeiture of esteem which awaits a groundless or exaggerated charge the second point of objection belongs to this review only in common with all other works of periodical criticism at least it applies in common to the general system of all whatever exception there may be in favour of particular articles or if it attaches to the edinburgh review and to its only co-rival the quarterly with any peculiar force this results from the superiority of talent acquirement and information which both have so undeniably displayed and which doubtless deepens the regret though not the blame i am referring to the substitution of assertion for argument to the frequency of arbitrary and sometimes petulant verdicts not seldom unsupported even by a single quotation from the work condemned which might at least have explained the critic's meaning if it did not prove the justice of his sentence even where this is not the case the extracts are too often made without reference to any general grounds or rules from which the faultiness or inadmissibility of the qualities attributed may be deduced and without any attempt to show that the qualities are attributable to the passage extracted i have met with such extracts from mr wordsworth's poems annexed to such assertions as led me to imagine that the reviewer having written his critique before he had read the work had then pricked with a pin for passages wherewith to illustrate the various branches of his preconceived opinions by what principle of rational choice can we suppose a critic to have been directed at least in a christian country and himself we hope a christian who gives the following lines portraying the fervour of solitary devotion excited by the magnificent display of the almighty's works as a proof and example of an author's tendency to downright ravings and absolute unintelligibility oh then what soul was his when on the tops of the high mountains he beheld the sun rise up and bathe the world in light he looked ocean and earth the solid frame of earth and ocean's liquid mass beneath him lay in gladness and deep joy the clouds were touched and in their silent faces did he read unutterable love sound needed none nor any voice of joy his spirit drank the spectacle sensation soul and form all melted into him they swallowed up his animal being in them did he live and by them did he live they were his life can it be expected that either the author or his admirers should be induced to pay any serious attention to decisions which prove nothing but the pitiable state of the critic's own taste and sensibility on opening the review they see a favourite passage of the force and truth of which they had an intuitive certainty in their own inward experience confirmed if confirmation it could receive by the sympathy of their most enlightened friends some of whom perhaps even in the world's opinion hold a higher intellectual rank than the critic himself would presume to claim and this very passage they find selected as the characteristic effusion of a mind deserted by reason as furnishing evidence that the writer was raving or he could not have thus strung words together without sense or purpose no diversity of taste seems capable of explaining such a contrast in judgment that i had overrated the merit of a passage or poem that i had erred concerning the degree of its excellence i might be easily induced to believe or apprehend but that lines the sense of which i had analysed and found consonant with all the best convictions of my understanding and the imagery and diction of which had collected round those convictions my noblest as well as my most delightful feelings that i should admit such lines to be mere nonsense or lunacy is too much for the most ingenious arguments to effect but that such a revolution of taste should be brought about by a few broad assertions seems little less than impossible on the contrary it would require an effort of charity not to dismiss the criticism 
with the aphorism of the wise man in animam malevolam sapientia haud intrare potest what then if this very critic should have cited a large number of single lines and even of long paragraphs which he himself acknowledges to possess eminent and original beauty what if he himself has owned that beauties as great are scattered in abundance throughout the whole book and yet though under this impression should have commenced his critique in vulgar exultation with a prophecy meant to secure its own fulfilment with a this won't do what if after such acknowledgments extorted from his own judgment he should proceed from charge to charge of tameness and raving flights and flatness and at length consigning the author to the house of incurables should conclude with a strain of rudest contempt evidently grounded in the distempered state of his own moral associations suppose too all this done without a single leading principle established or even announced and without any one attempt at argumentative deduction though the poet had presented a more than usual opportunity for it by having previously made public his own principles of judgment in poetry and supported them by a connected train of reasoning the office and duty of the poet is to select the most dignified as well as the gayest happiest attitude of things the reverse for in all cases the reverse is possible is the appropriate business of burlesque and travesty a predominant taste for which has been always deemed a mark of a low and degraded mind when i was at rome among many other visits to the tomb of julius the second i went thither once with a prussian artist a man of genius and great vivacity of feeling as we were gazing on michelangelo's moses our conversation turned on the horns and beard of that stupendous statue of the necessity of each to support the other of the superhuman effect of the former and the necessity of the existence of both to give a harmony and integrity both to the image and the feeling excited by it conceive them removed and the statue would become unnatural without being supernatural we call to mind the horns of the rising sun and i repeated the noble passage from taylor's holy dying that horns were the emblem of power and sovereignty among the eastern nations and are still retained as such in abyssinia the achilloas of the ancient greeks and the probable ideas and feelings that originally suggested the mixture of the human and the brute form in the figure by which they realized the idea of their mysterious pan as representing intelligence blended with a darker power deeper mightier and more universal than the conscious intellect of man than intelligence all these thoughts and recollections passed in procession before our minds my companion who possessed more than his share of the hatred which his countrymen bore to the french had just observed to me a frenchman sir is the only animal in the human shape that by no possibility can lift itself up to religion or poetry when lo two french officers of distinction and rank enter the church mark you whispered the prussian the first thing which those scoundrels will notice for they will begin by instantly noticing the statue in parts without one moment's pause of admiration impressed by the whole will be the horns and the beard and the associations which they will immediately connect with them will be those of a he-goat and a cuckold never did man guess more luckily had he inherited a portion of the great legislator's prophetic powers whose statue we had been contemplating he could scarcely have uttered words more coincident with the result for even as he had said so it came to pass in the excursion the poet has introduced an old man born in humble but not abject circumstances who had enjoyed more than usual advantages of education both from books and from the more awful discipline of nature this person he represents as having been driven by the restlessness of fervid feelings and from a craving intellect to an itinerant life and as having in consequence passed the larger portion of his time from earliest manhood in villages and hamlets from door to door a vagrant merchant bent beneath his load now whether this be a character appropriate to a lofty didactic poem is perhaps questionable it presents a fair subject for controversy 
and the question is to be determined by the congruity or incongruity of such a character with what shall be proved to be the essential constituents of poetry but surely the critic who passing by all the opportunities which such a mode of life would present to such a man all the advantages of the liberty of nature of solitude and of solitary thought all the varieties of places and seasons through which his track had lain with all the varying imagery they bring with them and lastly all the observations of men their manners their enjoyments and pursuits their passions and their feelings which the memory of these yearly journeys must have given and recalled to such a mind the critic i say who from the multitude of possible associations should pass by all these in order to fix his attention exclusively on the pin-papers and stay-tapes which might have been among the wares of his pack this critic in my opinion cannot be thought to possess a much higher or much healthier state of moral feeling than the frenchman above recorded End of chapter 21